What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So last week's episode was a little heavy, everybody, so welcome back. We promised we wanted to do a lighter episode this week and not take such a serious subject as comparing children of men to uh, President Donald Trump's uh, no-tolerance immigration policy. Yeah, I think we will will definitely go a little lighter this week. But we won't go less intelligent, if that makes any sense. Or less incredible. Or less incredible. So, you know... This week, uh, a last week, I should say, a new movie came out, The Incredibles 2, and we haven't seen it yet, um, but we definitely want to. It's on our, our docket. So we figured it might be fun in preparation to go see the new Incredibles movie to go back and talk about the first Incredibles. Um, one of the movies that I think is a sort of jumping off point for what we now call the superhero genre. We didn't call it then. And it's a movie by Pixar, came out in 2004, and it features a superhero family called The Incredibles. So I'm excited to talk about it. We've rewatched the movie dozens of times. Um, We've seen all the arguments that people are saying about it online. And we're gonna hopefully offer some interesting, new, fun insights. And we will obviously give it the Midnight Myth treatment. Excited to talk about it this week. But before we dive in, Laurel, a few folks that are listening to the podcast, they were asking me like, hey, Derek, how do we talk to you outside of the podcast? We want to keep the conversation going. So what are the ways that our audience can keep the conversation going once the episode ends? I find it interesting that they were asking you how they could talk to you. Um, it's a great, great, uh, digitally speaking, <laughs> they were asking me in the physical, how to talk to me digitally. Well, Hey, so we have a couple of channels that you can reach us on, uh, outside of the podcast sphere. Uh, you can hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at the midnight myth. We are on Facebook and we are on Instagram at midnight myth podcast. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Com. There's some more content there, including a brand new blog post that just went up. Uh, and if you haven't yet, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or a review if you have the time, because it really helps us get out there. Yeah. So a few fun facts to start off with. The Incredibles came out in 2004. I mentioned that before. Um, that's a long freaking time ago. Yeah. You know, so that's really before the MCU became a thing. There certainly was the uh, X-Men universe, but like 
there were the uh, um, Spider-Man movies with uh, Tobey Maguire and Sam Randy. Um, is his name Randy? The guy that Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi. I was Raimi. like, who's Sam Randy? Yeah, I, don't I even made know up who you're Sam, talking yeah, about. Sam, Sam Raimi. Raimi. Sorry. So those. You know, all due respect to Sam Raimi. Apologies, sir. But you know, it's still a new um, and forming a uh, film genre. So The Incredibles came out domestically. It grossed at two hundred and sixty-one million. $441,092. Huge success. Yes. Put another like $300 million on top for the international sales. Um, a lot of us know that it came from Pixar. You know, Pixar is just an amazing film studio with a really interesting history. Pixar was actually a name of a computer invented by Industrial Light and Magic. That, uh, that's a company George Lucas started because so many things come back to Star Wars. Yes, everything uh, does. Yes, so George Lucas started Industrial Light and Magic. They invented, uh, that company invented a computer called Pixar. That computer does computer graphics, and that became the name of the, the film studio Pixar, who famously had Steve Jobs as one of its uh, CEOs. It has been a part of Disney now, the Disney family, and I can say that I think most people would agree Pixar generally is high quality um, computer animated children movies. And uh, I think uh, The Incredibles is a proud little notch on their belt um, in terms of their dabbling into superheroism. Right. And Pixar is is well known for being emotionally and character driven stories um, that bring in really diverse artists and diverse perspectives. Um, and The Incredibles is directed by a guy named Brad Bird, who is also famously the director of Ratatouille uh, and the director of The Iron Giant earlier in 1999, which is one of the best animated films of all time. He also did one of the Mission Impossibles and uh, Tomorrowland most recently. Uh, then he's back to direct Incredibles 2. Uh, but this is a guy who, even though he's only made a few films, has really, really done um, extremely well, especially with his animated films. Yeah, I totally agree. A um, few fun things, right? So it came out in 2004. That's two years before the iPhone. So one of the just interesting meditations I had is that how many things the Incredibles kind of got right about technology. So they have GPSs in it, you know, something that you know didn't really exist, wasn't as widespread in 2004 as it is today. Uh, they also had a device that very much looked like an iPad. So when Mr. Incredible gets the message from Mirage, it comes to him through an iPad that speaks and then ultimately self-destructs. Self um, I think Syndrome's technology is almost all electric-based because none of it seems to have a like gas engine in it. Right. So sort of like a foreshadow of cleaner power and cleaner energy. Which is all interesting because it takes place, I think, in the 60s. Yes, the whole movie yeah. takes place in a sort of like 68 James Bondian, like, you know, the glory days were in the 50s and now they're in the 60s covert right. era. Yeah. Um, other fun things, self-driving cars. So Mr. Incredible has yeah. a car that drives itself. Drones are everywhere. Drones are another big thing. AI and, you know, robots that can, you know, do basic tasks, in this case, sometimes more complex tasks, like try to destroy a city. Yeah. So lots of fun things that The Incredibles, in a sort of predictive sense, kind of got right in 2004. Yeah. I, I also think it's interesting, just to reflect on kind of the last couple of weeks of the podcast, we've spent a lot of time in the aughts. 
uh, in the 2000s, or like, as I like to call them, the Nadiots or the Nadiotis. Um, we've talked about The Sopranos. We've talked about um, Lord of the Rings. Uh, last week we were talking about Children of Men, and now we're talking about The Incredibles. And I, we kind of naturally gravitated towards a bunch of uh, pop culture pieces from that time, from that like 2004, 2006 um, space and I think that's really interesting that we're revisiting that time in our lives now because it was such a strange uh, amorphous time for America so to go back to talking about that with the Incredibles uh, and as you're talking about the sort of predictive nature of the technology I think there's also a lot there in the um, in that sort of covert uh, almost like semi-political uh, feeling of that world that it revisited in the sixties is, is kind of fascinating. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so those were a few fun intro yeah. things I just wanted to throw out <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, another interesting thing, a lot of people in the comic community discuss the Incredibles as the fantastic four movie we all needed, but never got. Yeah. And for those of you listening that do not know, the Fantastic Four are a family of four superheroes in the Marvel Universe that have some fun overlaps with The Incredibles. Um, one is there's Mr. Fantastic. His superpower is he is super elastic. Then we have Elastigirl, whose superpower is that she's super elastic. There's the Invisible Woman, who has two powers. She can turn invisible and make invisible force fields. Then we have Violet, who has the ability to do that. Uh, then there's the Thing in the Fantastic Four, who has super strength and his skin is literal rock. So almost near invulnerability, but not complete invulnerability. Then you have Mr. Incredible, Bob, yeah. who has uh, super strength and near invulnerability, but not complete invulnerability. The last one is the Human Torch, human torch. Yeah. who has the ability to fly and turn himself literally on fire and like throw fire at things. Um, which they, they don't have is a very Jack, 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 Jack does turn himself on fire at one point, which I think is like a nod and wink, but they go with dash, um, who has super speed. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the main conflict and crux of what makes the fantastic four interesting and compelling comic characters is that they have to exist as a family that both has superpowers, super responsibility, super high intellect, uh, renowned in the world and in the universe for their abilities, but they also have things like sibling rivalry and marital spats. Yeah, yes. and, and, you know, so they have these, the same thing. And what makes them relatable as characters is that they're a human family that happens to also have superpowers. I think the Incredibles borrows from that and does such justice to that spirit, which is why the Fantastic Four fans look at it and say, that is what the Fantastic Four movie really should have that, not the same plot points, but the same spirit. That's what brings me to kind of how I want to get into the themes and the uh, the action of this movie is that core question, that core what if that drives the Incredibles. It's what if there was a family of superheroes? And that sounds really simple, but it gets into uh, public lives and private lives. It gets into... Uh, the persona and the self, and it dives into some really, really interesting questions that drive characters throughout this story. Uh, and so I want to start with the opening scene of the movie as we dive in, which is uh, we see sort of the cut scenes and the uh, 
the light tests for a documentary that is apparently being made about superheroes uh, in this universe. And the question that's being posed to these superheroes, we see Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and Frozone, the question being asked to them is, do you have an alter ego? And they all answer that question in different ways. Um, Mr. Incredible says, who wants the pressure of being super all the time? Of course I have an alter ego. Frozone says uh, that he'll go out on dates with other supers and they'll want to tell him all about uh, their, their alter egos. And he goes, I don't want to know about your mild-mannered alter ego because that's another self. There is a split self. And so we immediately are introduced to the fact that there is a division between a public life and a private life for these characters and then once we get into what that family looks like, we see the damage that having a public and a private life can really cause uh, if you are unable to reconcile those two parts of yourself. Interesting. I, I, so I'm, I was so up with you right up until the very end part there because I felt like we see the damage of what happens when they have to give up their public selves. You know, like, right? Like, so... So Mr. Incredible's main conflict is that he can no longer be Mr. Incredible and he misses it. Right? Yeah. And so because of that, he is detached. He's working a job he doesn't like. You know, he's been regulated to no longer exist because society has deemed he's done more harm than good. And because of that, he's not an engaged father. He's not engaged at his job. You know, he almost murders his boss, you know, and... Like, so to me, it's not the, the cost isn't in, Hey, we have these two lives. How do we reconcile them? To me, the cost is like, man, we gave up our one part of our life for just this only part. And that part is not fulfilling. Right? Yeah. I, I think that's what I'm saying. That's just a, a different way of framing what I'm saying. And, and it obviously is different for each of these characters because we have, uh, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Incredible or Bob and Helen who are adults and who, um, who grew up in a world where their superness could be out in the open and knew, know what it's like to have been out in the open and now have to repress it. And then we have characters like Dash and Violet who have grown up in a world where they have always had to suppress it. So seeing characters deal with the fact that they know that they have uh, two sides of their personalities, some that they can, uh, they can give to the world and some that they have to hide in shame... Uh, is is really difficult and arrests their development. So exactly like you just said with Bob, there is a part of him that uh, that formerly public persona of Mr. Incredible that he has had to swallow and bury very deep inside of him, and that bursts out into uh, these sort of horrible. Like you said, he tried to kill his boss. These outbursts of uh, rage that he can't control. Um, and yet, you know, he has to move through his life without sharing that part of himself. And so it becomes this shame that just eats away at his personality. And then Violet's another really good example of this growing up. Violet's a character whose power is that she can become invisible or create force fields. And because she has always had to hide that, she feels invisible in her public life. And so she hides from everything in the world and it has damaged her ability to grow up in a healthy way. So I think there's a lot to unpack 
with those um, those sides of the personality, but I, I think it's it's core to the character development of The Incredibles. Sure. So I want to pivot into something, if you'll permit me. That's cool with you. Yeah. So I want to pivot into what I think is sort of the the moral conflict and the moral heart of the movie. Um, and I'd say this not as the, I don't think it's the main conflict that Bob, Mr. Incredible is going through. I think it's a little different. So I think it first gets introduced when um, Dash gets in trouble at school. The teacher knows that Dash is playing tricks on him. So he pulls a camera to try to catch him in the act. But Dash moves so fast the camera can't catch him. The teacher knows it, but can't prove it. So he gets away with it. And, you know, Mrs. Incredible, Helen knows this and she's talking to him and, you know, telling him, hey, you didn't do well. You got in trouble at school. I know you actually did this, et cetera, et cetera. And then he starts going on like, well, Jesus, give me an outlet. Let me at least go out for sports. Right. And she says, no. And then his response to this is, but you always say I need to do your best. To which she replies, right now, honey, the world just wants us to fit in. And, you know, he feels attacked because he is special, in which she says, Dash, everybody is special. And he replies, well, you just said no one's special. Yeah. And I want to pause that scene and flash forward to when we finally get to Syndrome, who has the villain, who is the failed you know, incredible boy who Mr. Incredible shunned as he wanted to be a sidekick who grew up to become sort of a, a villain. Imagine if Tony Stark were a bad guy, he'd be syndrome. Yeah. And syndrome has several evil monologues, but we finally get his main point when he is sitting there talking to the incredible saying, I'm going to defeat the Kronos robot. I'm going to destroy it. And then I'm going to be the biggest and only superhero and everyone's going to love me and finally see me as the hero. And then, then I'm going to sell my superhero inventions. And that way, everyone can be a superhero, which is another way of saying there'll be no more superheroes. Yeah. And so both are making an argument of saying, hey, when there is equity, when everyone is equal, when all specialness has been you know, squashed from the world, there'll be no more excellence. No one will stand out. And those who do stand out will feel stifled. And he will have finally, syndrome that is, finally beaten all of the superheroes at their own game by effectively eradicating them by making everybody a superhero. Vice versa, Dash's conflict is the pressure, hey, I'm being asked to conform and by conforming, you're taking away the thing that I'm special. And I should go out there and be able to exercise my individuality. So my question for you is, in framing this, are Dash and Syndrome right? Well, I think, so this is a very, very important thing to highlight. Both Dash and Syndrome are on different sides of how they feel about that argument. They're both saying that if the playing field is equal, if everyone is special, no one is special. Um, but Dash feels like that is the worst thing in the world. And Syndrome thinks that that is utopia. Uh, and it's 
And, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but that right. is because Dash has innate superpowers and Syndrome does not, Absolutely, right. right. Um, and Dash is in many ways echoing what he's hearing from his father, too, who rails against the fact that uh, you know, Dash is getting a graduation ceremony to go from second to third grade, and he's like, we keep finding ways to uh, celebrate mediocrity, uh, but when someone is really, really exceptional, and that's when Helen shuts him down and says, this is not about you. Um, and this sounds a lot like, you know, something you might hear, you know, any, you know, drunk uncle at uh, a Thanksgiving dinner railing against is like, everybody gets a participation trophy, so therefore nothing has any value. And I don't, I don't know exactly where I stand on this um, as far as the, like, if everyone is special, no one's special thing. I don't think that's true, um, just from a personal standpoint. I think that, um, and I think where The Incredibles winds up is a place of celebrating individuality while also celebrating how our individuality and how our specialness makes us part of one big, beautiful painting, to not sound super super cheesy, but um, I don't think that's true, but I think that's a really important thing to grapple with in this movie, and I think all the characters are grappling with that in some way or another um, with, with that landscape. Yeah, and I think we all have to grapple with that. I think one of the things that I find that's interesting in my own life, having to learn that I'm not as special as I was taught, right? That I am just a average guy is actually one of the most like empowering like lessons of my life. Yeah. And so at one level being taught you're special, you're great. You can be everything and anything that you want. The pressure of that, like when that doesn't work out is immense. And the truth is a lot of times you can't be anything that you want. And I know that sounds depressing, but you know, this movie makes a very clear argument, you know, that sometimes outside forces will affect your ability to be X, Y, and Z. So for example, you can be a really great successful superhero, but in the act of being a superhero, you cause damages in the pursuit to find, you know, liability for those damages. You might be brought with a lawsuit, which then might change the laws which then might mean you can't actually responsibly be a superhero without doing more harm than good, at least in the eyes of society. And hence, then you have to stop being a superhero and be forced to be a claims adjuster. That is a example of the outside world putting parameters on the things that you can do that are both reasonable and understandable and that you have to conform to. Um, you don't really have much of a choice, but you can't be the thing that you wanted to be. And one thing that is interesting that I think The Incredibles makes the argument of that how can you still feel a sense of self and self-accomplishment when you had this vision of yourself and external forces, no fault of your own, say that you can't achieve that. And we see that transition through Mr. Incredibles' character coming to realize towards the end of the movie that what he really loves, what he really believes in, is that he should be a good father. That's more important to him than anything else. And he says this once they're all captured that, hey, this is my fault. Like, I've been a bad dad. You know, I was trying to chase these glories. I should really learn what Helen's been telling me all along, 
is that like my family is what it is and this is special and I should stop chasing these ideas that I could be this old superhero. Right. Yes. Yes. And uh, he also does get to fulfill that superhero dream again in the end without the, necessarily the public glory, but he experiences it in a new way and they all do in a new way, which I think comes back to what I was saying about reconciling those two parts of the self because Bob's misery was coming from the fact that he was in a position in his life where he felt like he could not move. He was in a box and he could not help people. He could not feel proud of himself. He didn't like the way that he looked. He didn't like the way that he felt. Uh, And he was taking that out and punishing himself and punishing his family for that. Uh, And then his journey takes him on this sort of covert second, you know, secret life uh, where he gets to fulfill and relive those glory days. uh, And that revitalizes his marriage uh, and makes him a more attentive father. But he's hiding this huge, massive secret from them where he ends up is a totally different place from that. It's a place of balance. It's a place of saying, I am the guy who looks out for others. Most importantly, I look out for my wife and my children. But if the, you know, the world is crying and the world is calling, I will answer its call and I will be there alongside my family to save the day. But I'm also the guy who goes to work and who goes to my son's track meets and encourages him, but doesn't, you know, doesn't inflate his ego. I'm a guy who's going to find that balance. And so is every single one of the Incredibles. They have to find a balance between, you know, the parts of themselves that they can show and the parts of themselves that they, you know, need to keep quiet, but not so buried that they burst. In other words, as I like your argument, it's about finding what is both pleasing to yourself as your ego versus what is your duty and role to society. Absolutely. And balancing that conflict and being able to find content in that conflict, because sometimes the world won't let us be the person we imagine ourselves to be. That doesn't mean we can't be completely fulfilled and happy individuals. And it gives us a counterpoint to that in Buddy or Incrediboy or Syndrome. Uh, This is a character who, by outside circumstances, was not born with superpowers Uh, and who tried really hard to get to a point where he could be respected by superheroes, and in a moment of, you know, just things not working out, he was shunned by the person that he cared about the most. Um, But this is a guy who's, he's tragic, you know? He took that one moment that didn't mean that much to Mr. Incredible, but meant everything to Buddy, and buried that inside and went to live in a literal volcano, which is the image of a dormant mountain that like waits in silence and then explodes and destroys everything and then took out that shame and that pain on the rest of the world. Uh, and it's tragic that he doesn't have the, you know, the family support or the love or the, uh, the appreciation of the mundane life or the day to day that Bob ends up with because if things had gone a different way, syndrome might've been able to be rehabilitated. Syndrome might've been able to, uh, come out at the end and and find joy in life without having to control it. Um, so he's a he's a super interesting counterpoint to Bob um, as far as suppressing a part of your personality or finding a balance. 
And what does the name he adopts, syndrome, exactly. even mean? Exactly. It is, quote, a group of symptoms that consistently occur together or a condition characterized by a set of associated symptoms. Wow, stuttering there. Yeah. You know, it is generally used in medical terms to describe conditions, syndromes, yeah. problems, a set of conditions that are inhibiting. He Even the name he takes, which he envisions himself as the hero in this story, as many good villains do. He thinks what he's doing is the right thing to do. And in that, the name that he takes is like, yeah, I've got this really horrible hero syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and so I'm literally acting out my, my hero syndrome. I'm essentially the toxic fanboy syndrome. Yeah, yeah. He literally, he locked himself away and he developed a complex. And now he is syndrome because he, he is a psychosis. Like he lives in a volcano and only lives in an echo chamber where like his voice is the only thing he can hear. And the toxic fanboy point is actually really, really prescient when it comes to, um, to the Incredibles. You mentioned that the sort of technology was a little bit predictive, but I think even more so uh, the Incredibles predicted the backlash against last Jedi. The Incredibles predicted Gamergate with syndrome. Go on. It's an interesting point. Tell me more. I think, you know, a character who uh, who feels slighted by, uh, you know, the, the behavior against him at some point in his life, who then retreats and becomes uh, a villain who turns that out against the rest of society uh, and a character who is entitled, a character who literally says uh, later in the movie when he's um, he's captured Mr. Incredible uh, and he sees him fighting the drone. He's like, I was geeking out about it. Uh, you had me geeking out so bad. And then uh, and then you lost, or then you gave up, and I was so disappointed. And he looks at Mr. Incredible as like his former idol who owed him something and then didn't give him that something that he was owed. Reminds me of a lot of elements of kind of toxic geek culture uh, where that feeling of entitlement gets weaponized against the franchises themselves, gets weaponized against each other in online forums, and gets weaponized especially against women and you know groups that are are not typically um, part of the like classical geek white male uh, enclave. And speaking as the uh, white male geek enclave <laughs> representative here, I. Uh, I have to agree with that point. Syndrome's main drive is that he expected Mr. Incredible to take him on as a sidekick. Totally unrealistic, totally ridiculous. And yet Syndrome is without a doubt a genius. He's without a doubt capable and special. He just doesn't have superpowers. His problem is that because he feels the world denied him what he wanted, he says this when he says, if I'm supposed to be who I want to be, well, who I want to be is your sidekick. If I can't be that, then I can't be anything. To me, represents sort of monolithic version and thinking about the self. Yeah. That I think is dangerous, in particular when we talk about raising people to their specialness. Rather than being like, Syndrome, you can have a great, fulfilling, and happy life. It's, Syndrome, you can be anything that you imagine yourself to be. Well, 
I can imagine myself to be the sidekick to a superhero. Can I be that? And the truth is, the answer is no. No, he can't be that. Right. You know, that's not a thing that he can be. Mr. Incredible doesn't owe him that. Mr. Incredible's job is not to have him as a sidekick. Mr. Incredible saves the world the way he wants to. And the reason is pretty clear to me. He doesn't want the kid to get hurt. Exactly. Simple, right? Exactly. But the tragedy of it is that, of course, Buddy doesn't understand that when he's asking to be, you know, his ward. He's not trying to cause harm as a kid. He's just a little annoying. And given, you know, the right encouragement, uh, not necessarily from Mr. Incredible, who does not owe him anything, but from, like, his parents or his teachers, uh, you know, that's a kid who could have grown up and been okay. We were all a little annoying when we were that age, and we all expected a lot from people because the world revolved around us. We, you know, the world was smaller to us then than it is now, and we didn't understand every single thing that was going on around us. But given proper guidance, we can actually come out of that. But he never gets the chance to come out of that, so he internalizes all of it and then weaponizes it against the rest of the world, which is a shame. And it makes him one of the best villains, I think, in uh, in any superhero movie, is that, you know, it's just such a cry and shame that he turned out the way he did. And he literally weaponizes it. He turns it into actual weapons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to, um, you know, maybe just say one thing to adding on a little pivot, if we shall, okay. into a different uh, aspect of it. I'd like to talk a little bit more about, I think, the characters that are, to me, the the heart and soul of, of the movie. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about Violet and Edna. Dash. <laughs> <laughs> She's awesome. <laughs> She's great. That wasn't where I was going, but I want to talk a little bit about the kids. Let's talk about the kids. Violet and Dash. And the reason why I want to talk about them is I'm a younger brother, right? So I had an older sister. And I thought from a just pure, like, dialogue character building level they nailed the siblingness between these two absolutely down to like how much they're disgusted and hate each other but love each other and would never let anyone hurt them i think is a like a defining characteristic of the siblings i love that uh dash has to learn to be content with a silver medal yeah his journey is like i'm the best and i know i'm the best and i need to show everyone the best to being like oh, well, I've already defeated a AI monster. So like, I don't really need to show the, I've got nothing to prove. Right. So I can get the silver medal. Right. And with and Violet, enjoy it. And enjoy it and think this is the greatest thing ever. And with Violet, her journey of being like from the shy, awkward, socially anxious to being the sort of, you know what? I'm going to tell this boy I like movies pick me up on Friday. Yeah. And just to show the confidence from where she started to where she ended. I thought that their journeys uh, conveyed to me the sort of the best circumstances of adolescent development that I've seen in movies in a long time. Yeah. And you know, this is obviously in, in the realm of fantasy because they're kids born with superpowers that we can never imagine to have, but we all had shame. We all had secrets growing up uh, and being honest about them is really, really hard when you're a kid because that's the kind of thing that 
adults tell you, like, you know, like that's not appropriate. That's not appropriate to share. Or like you're having these changes in your body, you're having these urges, um, or you're, you know, thinking these thoughts that you don't think are are normal. Those aren't talked about. That's stuff that is is hidden behind closed doors and given a little bit of space to uh, explore and flourish and like understand and educate. I'll bring this back to sex education like I did with The Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> we, can, we can almost like metaphorize their superpowers um, as, as that kind of shame. It's like if you create an open space for things not to be shameful, then they get to grow out of them, you know? Absolutely. And to me, you know, children in stories and movies, especially about the families, they will always represent the innocence and the sort of um, raw potential and the idea that what Bob, Mr. Incredible, lost was that he liked to sacrifice for the greater good. Yeah. He was someone that believed in helping others and putting others before himself. Yes, he always enjoyed it, but he always did it because it was the right thing to do. And he loses sight of that once he is robbed of his abilities to be the man he should be, which is a superhero. Once he becomes a claims adjuster in an insurance company, he loses sight of what's important. And it isn't until he believes that his children may have perished in a plane being exploded. It isn't until that moment where he's just like, the innocence, the symbol of promise and youth and tomorrow has been ripped from him until he realizes that this was really, it really was so much about him, but it never was. There's something more important for him now, and that's his children. Yeah. And I love that sort of metaphor, that or not metaphor. I love that moral that it goes to. Absolutely. And we see in Bob that like the goodness and the um the decency of him never really goes away. Uh even when he is boxed into a cubicle and works in, you know, one of the one of the coldest industries that you can, which is claims. Um as someone who has been denied a claim before, it's really like it's really painful that there is a person on the end of a phone line who can determine whether like this trauma in your life goes away or this trauma in your life continues to haunt you. It's really sad. Um, but Bob in that position still finds a way to do right by people, even if it means sort of subverting bureaucracy. So we see that his goodness never goes away. It's just directed uh, in a way that doesn't uh, benefit the people who need it the most, which are his family, uh, because he has come to associate his insurance job, his suit and tie, his his lame car, his house, his failures with um, with mediocrity. Uh, he doesn't value them the way that he should, uh, and in the end, I think we he becomes he finds a place where he can value uh, value the mundane, value the quote unquote mediocre and say, actually, these are the things that matter the most. I can't believe I almost missed them. And even in the glory days, you know, we're led to believe that Mr. Incredible has this FOMO about, uh, you know, helping an old lady get her cat out of a tree uh, saying like, oh, I really want to get to the big, sexy bon voyage thing. But like, that's what he's in it for is the gratitude of the fact that like you helped this sweet, innocent old lady a parallel to the old lady with the claim later, 
get her cat out of a tree, something that matters to her. And like, that's what being Mr. Incredible is about, not, you know, foiling every supervillain. Yeah. I think let's talk a little bit about uh, Elastigirl to bring it home. Let's do it. So Elastigirl is the character that is coping with the uh, removal of superheroes from public life the best. Yeah. She is balancing and being um, not only strong, but smart. She is a, a wise and good mother. She is also... This is uh, a world in which the uh, the domestic duties are really like relegated to the woman who stays at home where yeah. the man goes out to the job and works and they have to conform to that. Yeah. Which is a shame that should in many ways produce as much existential dread in her as it does to Bob, Mr. Incredible, but it doesn't. Yeah. She, right? Yeah. She shoulders an enormous uh, emotional burden of being the rock of the family and also being relegated to like the least glamorous of all of their secret lives. Cause at least Bob gets to go to a job outside in the world and do it. She just has to stay home. And not that that, that is not hard work. I don't mean to demean that in any way, shape or form, but it is the exact opposite of what she said she wanted in the first scene. She said in the first scene that she would never want to give up being a superhero. She's in her prime. Where Bob said, eh, maybe one day I'd like to just, you know, retire and have a family. When it comes to it, they both of their talents, they're kind of like inverted. Yeah. She's actually really talented at being the mom and the bedrock and the 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 very clear leader of the family. Yeah. To me. Like that family is a matriarch. She is Absolutely. in charge. She runs it even when, you know, Mr. Incredible starts to get upset with her when he sneaks out, lies to her, says that he's bowling, goes out superheroing, comes back. He starts to yell at her. What does she do? She lashed the girls up and like matches him physically. It's just yeah. like, this is not about you. This is about her son and totally puts him in his place. And when it comes down to it, when, the kids are in trouble when they are, you know, the plane has been exploded when he has been captured. Who's there to bring it all together? My, my girl, Elastigirl. Yeah. Like she is awesome. I'll, I'll give you a couple of quotes that illustrate the fact that not only is she the, the rock of the family and of the characters here, but she very clearly gives us the themes of the movie uh, in her dialogue, which I think is pretty amazing. Do it. Um, at the wedding, when she is getting married to Bob, uh, she looks at him and she says, I love you, but if we're going to make this work, you've got to be more than Mr. Incredible. She doesn't say... I don't need Mr. Incredible. I need Bob Parr. She doesn't say, you know, you have to shake off your superhero-ness just to be my husband. She says, you have to be more than Mr. Incredible. Valuing the family man over the public superhero, saying that the full version, the full actualization of you means you are going to be a loving father, a loving husband, and also someone who does good for the great the greater good of the community. Uh, and I think that is something that carries us through his development. She also gives us later in the movie the idea that we can do anything if we work together. Super simple, but 
she's also saying we don't have to disregard the parts of ourselves that are exceptional. We don't have to repress them, but we do need to let go of needing to be singularly exceptional. So I think this comes back to what you're saying about if everyone is special, no one is. And this is why I think that's wrong because like we can all be special, but we all don't have to be alone and special. Um, I don't know if that makes a whole bunch of sense. But, oh, no, I'm right with you. But our best, our best chance at survival, at success, and even implementing systems that are just is collaboration, is finding those parts of ourselves that are special, that mesh with those other special parts of other people, and creating feedback, creating you know a community that has temperance, that has support, and helps us correct for flaws so that we can create a union that is more perfect. And the Incredibles teaches us that, yes, society can crush and destroy the individual under the weight of its bureaucracies, systems, and corporations. But you can also thrive and be self-actualized, and you can, you can, and you don't have to do that alone. When you're feeling crushed and oppressed and small, and when you're feeling like the, uh, the boss at the insurance company, you're just one cog in a machine and that you don't really fit, but you're trying to force it, there's someone like Elastigirl at home who is there to support and love and care for you. And when it comes time, when it happens, that Project Kronos starts fucking up your city, <laughs> you can all band together as individuals and as a community and fuck up syndrome. Yeah, and our best chance at you know taking those systems that we feel like crush the individual or crush our individualism is to embrace the fact that we are all in the same boat. So even, you know, the Wallace Shawn character who plays the boss at the insurance company, all he says he loves is bureaucracy, but that guy's got some specialness going on in the background. You don't know. Maybe he makes a really amazing beef wellington. Like, these are the <laughs> kinds of, of things that, like, we... We have to look around at every single person. He has an excellent <laughs> tongue for juice and knows his juices really well. That was strange. Or he's an orthographer or orthologist. He knows birds. Anyway, um, we're talking Elastigirl. You but, had some quotes. But yeah, that, that was my other quote was like, we can get through this and we can get through this together. Um, and I think she's giving us the message there that is, uh, that is not just... Um, it's not individualistic and it's not communistic. It's something in between. It creates a kind of balance. My favorite moment with Elastigirl was when they're in the cave. The plane's been blown up and uh, she's leaving. She's telling the kids like, hey, you have to be superheroes now. There's no choice. You know, these bad guys, they're coming and they're going to come and they're going to try to murder you. And your powers and your secret identity are what are going to get you through it. Right. And that's a tough thing for a mother to say, but it's the right thing for her to say at that time. And as she's leaving, Violet chases after her, upset because Elastigirl asked her to put a force field around the plane, and Violet failed. Flat out failed. She had the power to do it, but she choked. Right. This could be perceived by many as a failure. By many aggressive parents chasing their glory days. Think of the uh, father pressing his child to go too aggressive in Little League because the father thought he should have been a Major League Baseball player, right, right? right? A lot of parents will, in that moment, look at the child and call them weak and demean them. We've all seen this. Maybe we've experienced it in our own lives as children. What I thought was awesome was that Elastigirl does the opposite. Yeah. She says, 
I pressured you when you weren't ready. That's my fault. Yeah, I should never have put you in that situation. And it says, but and lovingly, it says, don't worry. I believe in you, and I know you'll get it done when it matters most. And that wasn't it. It was bad, but that wasn't it. And she does another little thing that I think is really great. She pushes Violet's hair over her ear. Yeah. A, a symbol of, like, get let your face come out. Yeah. Right? You know, because Violet's hair covers her face, so he, she pushes it back over the ear. Violet puts on the mask and stands there, and we all as the audience know Violet is now closer to being a hero than she was before that conversation. Yeah. And what I love about that moment is, isn't that the role of your parent? Isn't that the, the what a great parent does, saying, hey, I've got to leave you right now, because all parents will eventually leave their children is that is the way of things. But before I do, I don't care about your failures. I believe you will be successful. Yeah. And that moment to me was like, God damn. It's Elastic a Pix- Pixar gut punch. That yeah. That is fucking awesome. The gesture of of pushing the hair out of the face, it's it's very much just an I see you. Like I know that you can literally make yourself invisible, and I know that sometimes you feel invisible, but I see you. I see that you tried to save our lives. Uh, and maybe it didn't work out, but that's my fault. And I see that you have more power than you can possibly imagine, which is not only an incredibly important message for girls, but I think uh, one of the strengths of Pixar and the strengths of a lot of great quality animated movies these days is what education they give for adults. And Helen, um, and Elastigirl, she is an incredible example uh, for motherhood and parenthood and even Bob, as he you know actualizes on his journey, becomes a really great example of fatherhood. Um, so yeah, I just hats off to Pixar for greenlighting a story that focuses on that kind of parent-child relationship. Absolutely, that's all I got. Final thoughts, or do you have anything else? Yeah, I just want to share in the final moments of the movie that race when they finally let Dash go out for sports. It feels like it's the perfect uh, metaphor for uh, some of the ideologies at play in the movie um, where we see the parents in the stands cheering him on uh, and then he speeds up and goes too fast and they're like, no, 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 a little bit slower, make it close, make it close. And everybody's looking at them like they're crazy. It's kind of perfect, right? So they're, they're like, hey, our new stance is to encourage our kids to be the full versions of themselves, but not to be dicks about it. And, you know, to recognize that they were born with special advantages and that once in a while it's important to slow down and let others catch up and recognize that not everybody has the superpower that you have. Uh, It doesn't mean, you know, making yourself worse. It just means recognizing the importance of the community. And I think we arrive in The Incredibles in a really, really careful balance between... um, this idea of the individual uh, breaking out of its suppression and a sort of socialist collectivism. We have a really interesting balance here where the Incredibles discovered that they are needed in society and there's a place for their power in the world, but that they can't unleash those powers without checks and balances. They need the rest of the family to reach their full potential and they can't use their powers purely for self-gain. They have to use their powers for the good of the many. Uh, And I I think finding that kind of nuance in a movie is really rare. 
but I appreciate it a lot that it doesn't say uh, you have to adhere to this ideology or another. It's just about like be good people and try to strike a good balance. My final thought is going to be this. I love Superman. Superman is one of my favorite superheroes of all time. I've always loved Superman. And to a lot of people, he's not interesting because he's not dark and he's not (laughs) tormented. And uh, he is hokey and he's cheesy and he is so morally, uh, you know, and righteously, clearly on the path of goodness and virtue that, you know, some people dislike that. But what I like about Superman is that when Superman is done right, he is sincere. It is clear what Superman wants. It's clear what drives Superman. And even when he falters and fails, it's genuine and it's honest and it's real. I think when we look at the Incredibles and we look at the writing of how they drew those characters, they drew them like fucking Superman. When Superman is done right, they drew them with not being afraid of the realness and the rawness, but also the cheesiness. Yeah. This is a story about a father learning to love his kids more than he learned to love his past. This is a story about a mother who would do anything to love, protect, and raise her children. This is a story of two brothers, or brother and sister, pardon me, who can't get along, but still find a way to love each other no matter what. This is a story about a family that they just happen to also have superpowers. And when I think of the genre of superheroes writ large, I think what I like about The Incredibles is that it's genuine, it's sincere, yeah. and it it's not afraid to be touching, it's not afraid to have humor, it's not afraid to have heart. And the one thing that I hope to see more from the success of The Incredibles and the clear success of The Incredibles too is that more superhero movies aren't afraid to have heart. They're not afraid to be a Christopher Reeves Superman who isn't afraid to stop fighting a bank robber to save a kitten from a tree. And that's not a joke. That's literally what the superhero does. Yeah. And I love that The Incredibles gets that. That sometimes I love a superhero because they're morally perfect. Not because every action they take is morally perfect. Not because... Everything they do is in line with that, but because at the core, they're just fucking awesome people. Yeah, they have a North Star. And, and you know, go ahead, sorry. No, that's it. That's all I got. You know why I love The Incredibles? Because it's got a baby that turns into a gremlin. We didn't even really talk about Jack-Jack, <laughs> though he's just a fun part. Yeah. we. Um, this has been a great conversation talking about a movie that we deeply love we are going to see the new Incredibles movie. Probably by the time this actually publishes, we will have some thoughts on that. Uh, so expect to hear uh, something from us on one of our social media channels or on a new episode once we've seen it, uh, sharing our new opinions on the latest sequel. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind.